Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, um, recognizing that what we are doing now is uh, thinking about our relationship with the Lord that ought to motivate us with respect to prayer. I wanted to just draw your attention specifically to uh, Ephesians and chapter 2. And um, my interest specifically at this point is uh, to do with verse 4. So Ephesians uh, chapter 2 and verse 4. Um, there is the phrase there, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we did in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then the phrase, by grace, you have been saved. The context of those words, the wider context, is the Apostle Paul is celebrating the unsearchable riches of Christ, especially made manifest in the salvation of the Ephesians. Um, Ephesus was the capital of the uh, Roman province of Asia. And so the church being planted there meant an opening to so many other cities in that province. And as you are familiar with this letter, uh, in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul lays out uh, the way in which God saves us through the Father in electing grace, through the Son in his atoning grace, and through the Spirit in his regenerating grace. So that's a very wonderful section in this epistle. And then beyond that, he then speaks about his prayer for the brethren. And his primary prayer is that they might know a number of facts, uh, indicatives about who they are in Christ. Uh, there is the aspect of their hope, but my interest is in the last part, and it is the power of God at work within them. That's towards the end of chapter 1. So their hearts being enlightened that they might know all these realities. But it is with respect to this power of God that we are brought to our knees normally. We recognize our insufficiency. We recognize the, the battles that we have as believers in this world, and especially with respect to our own sanctification. So the Apostle Paul is saying to the Ephesians that God has committed such almighty power towards their sanctification and glorification that really they should be primarily rejoicing in it rather than being at their wit's end, hoping that perhaps God might come in power for them. So he ends chapter 1 by showing how this is displayed in Christ. 
And I think we're all familiar with that from verse 20 right to the end of this chapter. And then chapter 2 begins. Let's remember that these chapters were not there when Paul was writing. Paul was just writing a letter. And so as chapter 2 begins, it's a change of gears, but it's not a new thought altogether. All Paul is doing is now coming to the Ephesians themselves and is saying, and you, this is where God got you from. You were dead, and then we have all those aspects of being in slavery to the devil, in slavery to the world, and in slavery to our own fallen natures, and by nature, objects of wrath. So it is that world that precedes that statement, but God. And so if we can just bear that in mind, it enables us to see that strictly speaking, before God comes into the picture, it is a hopeless and helpless situation. God changes all that. Again, I want us to pause because when we go into a time of prayer, often, yes, we might do so because it is a time to pray. But there will be situations we are praying for that are completely impossible. But God, we need a miracle. Only God can bring it in. And that's precisely the situation Paul deliberately paints when he begins with verse 1, 2, and 3, showing death, a completely impossible situation, hopeless situation, death. And then he says, but God. And ultimately, it is that which brings hope into hopelessness the God who is there. I want us to notice that before Paul brings out what God has done, which we notice when he says that he made us alive together with Christ, he first of all points out this God who is rich in mercy. And then he says, because of his great love with which he loved us, And then he ends verse 5 by saying, by grace, you have been saved. What has mercy, love, and grace got in common? It is the goodness of God, the attribute of goodness. In other words, the God to whom we pray, the God who sits on the throne. Yes, he's a God of justice. Hence the statement before verse 4, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. He's a God who must punish sin. But that's only one aspect of this God. The other aspect, which is equally true, is that he is a good God. Let me say that again. He is a good God. He is 
a God of mercy, a God of love, and a God of grace. Now, the bigger picture with respect to what Paul is talking about here is salvation itself, which he painted in chapter one. We've just gone through that. But as we are coming to him in prayer, for us, we must bear in mind that whatever it is we are dealing with, the We'll just give it another moment and trust that Conrad will be back with us. With mercy, with love, and in the midst of the challenges of life, in the midst of that which might look impossible, we are coming before a God who has that attribute, a God of mercy. Let's just wait another moment. I think he may be back. A God of love, of grace. May we be therefore encouraged in that fact. Sorry, did you lose me? We lost you just for a moment, but you're back now, Conrad. Okay. I actually wrapped up. Is there something I need to repeat? I don't think so. You were only out for five or six seconds at a time. Okay, thank you very much. So over to you. Okay, well, in that case, could you repeat your conclusion? Because uh, we may not have tied it all together at the end. All right, thank you. So I basically concluded by saying, as we come to God in prayer, let us remember his attributes of goodness, because that will encourage us as we are wrestling with the challenges that we are bringing before the Lord. Yes, he's a just God. He must punish sin. He is a God of truth, and therefore he's a God who is faithful. Very well, Conrad. I think we lost you again. I'm going to give it just another covenant. But let goodness, a God of encourage us as we pray. 